Be Real is brought to you by the MFA in Writing program at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Their two-year program has launched Molly Prentice, Adam Nemet, and Julie Lithcott-Hames. Come write with them. Learn more about CCA's den of poets, raconteurs, playwrights, and novelists at cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! We'll throw your side-crimped cowboy hat on your mullet Tie your Swedish flag to the back of your boat And come at me with your pretentious ideas about the 1960s This is Be Real, your movie-reviewing and reappraising podcast My name's Chance Solem Pfeiffer and I'm Noah Ballard, and a pleasant Jai Guru Deva Om to you, Chance. Thank you, my friend. How are you doing? You know, I'm okay. I've been in sort of a, you know, a time of reflection, as it was just the Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. So it was good to, you know, hate myself for a full day in synagogue and then hate myself for a full day watching these movies. <laughs> Our category this time out uh, is that of the jukebox musical movie, and Noah Ballard and I are sitting down to discuss 2008's Mamma Mia, 2012's Rock of Ages, and 2007's Across the Universe. What slaves to the 2000s we are. Right, and if you're sort of unfamiliar with these films, these are all movies and or musicals that were thrust together. A plot was thrust upon a body, a catalog of musical work by... Mm-hmm. Famous musicians, two of which are the two of these movies. It's all the same musicians. Uh, right. It's the Beatles and ABBA, and then in Rock of Ages, it's uh, just a whole sort of kind of stadium rock. Yeah, like hair metal broadly, I suppose yeah. one might say of Rock of Ages. Um, but things we'll discuss on this episode include uh, who can sing and who cannot. What happens when uh, movie stars take over parts that were, you know, mostly once executed by trained theater professionals? Uh, How do these things look? How does the journey from stage to screen work? Do we like the music of these artists at all? (laughs) What is an appropriate amount of people dancing and singing on a fire escape? Sure. And to help us and maybe tip the scales away from, uh, you know, Two reactionary know-nothings. We've got um, a Playbill senior features editor, Ruthie Fearberg, coming up to to talk about the history of the Jukebox musical, because there is an interesting history, and to talk about uh, sort of the critical ideas that exist around these, a genre that's maligned by some, I would say. We'll see how Noah and I fall. You just gave me a look. You guys, Noah is giving me a look. I may be maligning (laughs) as this this (laughs) podcast goes on, but it was an excellent interview, Chance. Thank you. I'm yeah. That's coming up. Um, Before we get into this movie uh, or these movies, do you want to uh, throw to the ethos corner? Because I have something I just want to. As two, I feel like the two of us really need to unpack something. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Little rider, Donnie. Donnie, little rider. What is it? Well, so the Nebraska Cornhuskers just got murdered this weekend. Oh, yeah. Jim Harbaugh stepped on their neck and did not release his boot for 
all 60 minutes. What do you think they're going to go? Oh, and 12. This is of course the f- college football team representing our alma mater, the university of Nebraska Lincoln. Yeah. And if you're listening to ads about MFA programs and waiting to hear what theater experts have to say, you want to hear about this. Assuredly. <laughs> this is like one of the few sporting things that I am concerned with. You That's know? true. Cause I won't talk with you about the Yankees on the pod. No, we're not going to get into baseball. Like, I'll save that for, you know, the bottom of emails of total strangers. Um, <laughs> Do you want to hear my theory about Scott Frost and the end of history, or should we save that for off the air? Well, I mean, if you can do it quickly. I had a, a thought last night where if, uh, you know, if you give up on Scott Frost, the Nebraska team will just wander in the woods forever. Because the only thing that gives this team identity is past success and a connection to the removal from that past success. And if you give up on Scott Frost, you become Illinois. So this has to work, basically. I would give the man a decade to try and figure it out. Well, that's so interesting to me because, it, it, and we've talked about this before, Chance, is the idea that you think there's some, like, flaw in the system or some hubris that goes into some decision making that keeps the team from being good whereas i have believed since maybe the first time i saw nebraska just get throttled by a much superior opponent that this team is cursed and it doesn't matter if you had um bill belichick as the head coach cheating at like full bore i don't (laughs) think they'd be like a nationally competitive team A lot to unpack there, including some unfounded accusations. Let's move into the show. Okay, let's run. So Mamma Mia came out in 2008. It was directed by uh, Philida Lloyd, uh, an English director who also uh, directed Meryl Streep later in The Iron Lady. Um, it was popular when it came out in 2008 and kind of comes in this streak of Meryl Streep, albeit briefly, uh, you know, taking a break after 30 years of Sophie's choices and out of Africa being like, I could be fun too. You have the devil wears Prada into the woods, Mamma Mia, um, Julian. It's complicated. It's complicated. Yes. One of my Um, faves. It's complicated. The, the whole plot of that movie is the woman just wants to add an addition to her kitchen. There's this, run, there's this run here where she does sort of like bask in the Tuscan sun of like her yeah. early 60s. <laughs> and that's what Mamma Mia is uh, kind of on the nose portraying. Absolutely. Well, let me talk about this. Do you feel like this movie came out more recently than 2008? It does kind of feel that way. Is that just because of the sequel, maybe? I, maybe, but I felt like it surprised me that Rock of Ages didn't come out in 2008 uh-huh. and that Mamma Mia didn't come out in 2012. Sure, that's fair. I guess that maybe I remember them, uh, but it, it, this one definitely feels more recent, whereas Rock of Ages is like a bizarrely dated picture for being five years old. <laughs> and, and did it happen at all? Really? Right. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about the setup here. Mamma Mia classic Greek comedy here. Mm-hmm. With the Greek chorus and everything. Sure. So I guess we can start with the sort of production side of things. You have the discography of ABBA, a Swedish pop group from the 70s and 80s. Yep. And these collection of saccharine sweet pop tunes. Like, so let's saccharine. figure out how to put that into a plot. And the plot that emerges is 
this young woman in order to find her father who she's never known invites three men to her wedding and then you piece together the reason she's invited these men is because she read her mother's diary from the time where she got pregnant mm-hmm. and it mentioned these three guys and these three three guys well this is um amanda seafried and meryl streep is the mom uh and the, the men are of course pierce brosnan and colin firth and stellan skarsgård <laughs> is that the only real wink to the fact that like these artists are swedish i think it might be because he has a Swedish flag. We have to have boat. a Scars Garden here. Right. Is Bill too young? Is Alexander too ripped? Let's get Stellan. So the three men come to the island. So they're on this Greek island because the mothers inherited this hotel from Stellan Skarsgård's aunt or something. I think that's right. There are a lot of like little throws to dialogue about like how, who got where that I, that kind of went over my head in the wash of, uh, you know, disco. Right. And anyway, so the men show up. Hilarity ensues when Meryl Streep realizes that all these guys are there and she doesn't seem to know who the father is either. Yeah, it's a total farce. Every girl has a dream. I want the perfect wedding and I want my father to give me away. Look at my baby, your whole life ahead of Every family. I read mom's diary. Has a secret. And I have three possible fathers. Oh my God. Every wedding. Which one did you invite? Has a few surprises. You always knew how to make an entrance. Well, then, like, and we can sort of get into the the intentionality here and my sort of problems with the movie. um, In that, it's quickly sort of explained that Meryl Streep would be better off on this island. Like what will, what's keeping her from happiness is a man with a large bank account and some sexual vigor left in his veins. It's a rich man's world. We're we're playing with some pretty like traditional sort of operatic norm trope things here. Definitely. Definitely. Which is so amazing to me in the context of like, what do we want to see from a movie musical? Like, what is the purpose of this, the, this artistic expression? It's to like reaffirm totally dated, like gender norms, but like the people seeing that, like what, who's your audience here? It's not people who prefer traditional gender norms. I don't know. Mama Mia. Who, who comes to New York and sees Mama Mia? It's not the people in your neighborhood in Brooklyn. Sure, but they don't go to Broadway. Um, I know, and they definitely. But isn't it like it's like your mom? But let me tell you about my mom. She would appreciate the more sort of like age of Meryl Streep, um, middle brow feminist who um, raised raised her daughter as a single mom and uh, is ultimately not shamed. even though her daughter does react against her, but is not shamed for like the way she lived her life. I mean, I think, I think you have this sort of like, um, but I would disagree that I think the main conflict for Meryl Streep in this movie is like both outing and overcoming the social stigma of having been quote unquote slutty for this three month period. I don't think that's true. See, I think that's her like big secret that the Greek chorus kind of like gasps about. It's a big secret. I guess it's in her... Yeah, maybe. It's outed from her diary. It is outed from her diary. So, I don't know. But yeah, I have some problems with, like, just the... 
why this plot? Like you have a such a strange and parenthetically terrible body of work that you could do like whatever you want to do. Like why, how do we get from dancing queen to this sort of colonialist white hotel on this Greek Island where white people want to be as like traditional as possible. And like, they don't quite have the money to do it. Is Sweden known for colonizing and Greece is not? This is a part of your argument. I don't think I'm going to get into but that's what I don't understand about this movie is they're on a Greek island, but there's no Greek speaking characters. It's just the white people who have decided to like that they can't quite hack it on this island. But we don't actually interact with the natives at all, which is strange. Again, because it's not like the body of it's not like ABBA's music is about white people living in Greece. Right. You know, like why you know, Greek people choose? are white. Right. But I would argue that we're talking about I'm talking about like sort of like white anglo-saxon european you know uh-huh. but do you think that there I, I don't think that american white privilege exists for a swedish hotel owner in greece i would argue it is a bigger commentary on uh, unintentionally about how specifically greece has been turned by like western tourist culture like into a place where white people go because it's nice but like mm-hmm. the local population has been like horribly torn apart by this this same influence welcome to the eu austerity podcast my name's chad solemn pfeiffer <laughs> but you don't think it's weird like why did this does this movie have to be in greece and if it is in greece why isn't it about a bunch of greek people you know it's the island doesn't exist i i think i think you're you're why are you? Why is your light this of interrogation this bright for Mama fucking Mia? Okay, we'll we'll get past all that. But let's go back to the idea that like Abba's music is terrible. <laughs> Abba, um, as you said, is so saccharine. It makes the Beatles seem like Elvis Costello. Um, it is very. It's just like, I, if you can't get on board with Abba in some way. If there's no kitsch factor for you, this is a tough two hours. I mean, that's why I got so deep into my head thinking about like colonial politics, like the colonial political read of this movie, uh-huh. which is troubling. I still maintain that it's troubling. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Does being James Bond qualify you as being a good singer? Finally, we can come together on something. Uh, I mean, Pierce Brosnan. Have you seen this movie before? No. No, me neither. But I've heard long before there was Russell Crowe in Les Mis, there was Pierce Brosnan in Mamma Mia. Oh, I've Pierce heard Brosnan walked years. in Mamma Mia so uh, Russell Crowe could run <laughs> <laughs> in Les Mis. When you think about we'll get to Rock of Ages, but Tom Cruise to me feels like a robot who studied with a vocal coach for five years to learn. I just, he's like, I want to hit a flat baby and i'm not stopping who's until this I, tom cruise tom cruise singing okay. in rock of ages i'm not stopping till i can jump out of a plane and sing a flat and pierce brosnan just kind of wandered on a set and was like what is music i don't know because his voice the way he is singing is preposterous it's so hard to find. i tried to reach for you but you have closed your mind Whatever happened to our love, I wish I understood. But you like Meryl Streep in this. Yeah, I think she's, I mean, I think that's the, the fun, t- that's, that's the pleasure. You're, you're, this is the height of the, the Meryl kick that we were talking about. 
earlier of her just like wanting to um, literally let her hair down um, and run around on a confectionery looking set on a fake Santorini is what's going on here. Um, and I like, I would, I enjoyed that perfectly fine. And she's a surprisingly good singer. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, but there's something about, so let's talk about the like production design of this movie. Cause this movie is a Broadway musical filmed. Yes. It's not really attempting to be a movie and it's not attempting to exist in a vacuum the way that, you know, I argue that across the universe is a movie sure. for better or worse. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, does it feel like a staged play to you? Yes. It looks very fake, but I also feel like it's, that's fine with that. It's not trying to look real. I think it's still striking because the blues are so blue and the yellows are like practically gold, but. But that's like not really what I go to the movies for. Understandable. It's not a, like a very cinematic adaptation. So Sophie wants to marry Skye in this, like, what she's calling, like, a big, formal, like, white wedding. And what it actually is, is a very intimate 20-person wedding on the top of a hill, like, in their home. But for some reason, this idea offends Skye so much that he, like, almost, like, breaks up with her to be like at all like he breaks up with her like altogether because of it mm-hmm. and he's especially sort of strained by her quest to find her father because as he admits he's like a very jealous person so this gets into like sort of a third troubling thing for me which is don't you feel like in this movie and we will get to it cuz i know you want to talk about favorite songs and least favorite songs thank you but doesn't this movie have a scene in it with every single character, every single one of the dad characters where there's like a sexual component to their relationship with Amanda Seyfried, with, uh, with Sophie? Uncomfortably so with Brosnan. It's, un, it's kind of He's always like just... taking her to like quiet corners to like tell her meaningful things and about how much, he, like how much he's tried. There's just something, yeah, there's something just like about the way he stands too that is like more like... Oh, he's pleats out, baby. Invasive than paternal. Uh-huh. Um, right. Yeah, I think Stellan pulls it off because he is just like kind of like a goofy old man and Colin Firth would never do anything untoward to anyone. <laughs> but Pierce, I think, yeah. You never find out who the father is. Spoiler alert. You need to go see Here We Go Again to figure out who dad is. Because there's no 23 and Me in this. There's no mm-hmm. blood, uh, blood test scene. Nobody's swabbing any mouths. That's the big mystery of the, and it, it, it's, it's Did unbelievable. Did you need to me. know? Yeah, I wanted to know. It didn't bother me. I knew it was going to happen. It didn't bother me that the only question this movie posed, it like forcibly didn't answer. Can we talk about some more things that like happen in the movie? Um, Let's I, talk one, about One them. of the things that I think works well is the, the comedy of the trios, the Julie Walter, Meryl Streep, Christine Baranski, the Colin Firth, Pierce Brosnan, Stellan Skarsgård, in the Money, 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 in the Our Last Summer, um, when they are allowed to play off each other in a very like traditional musical way, I think it's funny and they like have good bits. And especially Colin Firth is good at sort of like surprisingly good at like popping his sh- head out from behind Pierce Brosnan's shoulder, who's standing there like a like an oak tree and saying things like, "Oh, I'll do whatever you want. I'm a." Uh, spontaneous like he's very he's good at those bits and i think baranski um as sort of like you know the tall one on the end of this like uh 
this disco review they're doing. She she was like made to do this role, and she's kind of like the anti-Brosnan. You know, like he just wanders around for twenty minutes in this movie, going, "Where's Donna?" And it's like, <laughs> stop asking that. Whereas Baranski can get away with lines that she has no business getting away with. Like Meryl's wondering about like, "Where's Sophie? Where's Sophie? She's gonna be so mad." And Christine Baranski's like, "Who knows? Perhaps she'll be." cool with it um and it's just like a she's really good at selling the kitsch of this movie she's excellent yeah i would say that she's though like playing at a different level than most of this movie is where there this is like for her it's like a rocky horror picture show you know especially <laughs> like where there's that you know the, the scene with the the guy that's like the the bartender on the beach the bartender yeah and she's like you think she's like giving him oral sex but it turns out she's just like putting him in a towel diaper or something uh-huh you know and there's like a and what's so wrong with that <laughs> So, should we turn toward a rating? Or should we give people, tell people what our rating system is? There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good Movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicolas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a ward's bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all on the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. So I feel like I should have said up front that you were really coming at a part of this movie that I didn't care about. I was never going to make an argument that Mamma Mia was good, good. Uh, but I think it is um, earnestly, holistically, messily, bad, good. Um, and if you want to explain what you thought made it unfun, you can. But I think this was the most watchable of the three. This one was just so immediately and insistently surface level in so many ways and I don't really like the music of ABBA. That's fair. 
So, and like, like I said, like, I think this movie, like a lot of these movies subscribe to these like very simple and boring operatic tropes of like, we need to unmask this person or I need to find my love in order for the movie to resolve. Yeah. And that's so boring, especially because you could be so narratively inventive. Like in the interview, you talk about how difficult it must be to write to these songs because you're going from the songs to the plot. But I think like that frees you to make the plot as weird as possible because you always have the out of saying like, well, we had to use the music of ABBA, don't you know? So that's fair for me like that. This movie forces these otherwise sort of bizarre songs into what is the most traditional operetta that I've ever seen. Really? I'm going to go bad, bad. Who doesn't think Mamma Mia is fun? I don't, I don't, that's not how I rate movies. I may rate movies it's like what, what they make me movie feel. Is a messy this movie made me feel that's fun is bad. Good. This movie made me feel nothing. Oh wow. And that was the problem with it. It, it, it cause it had no depth to it and it had oh nothing my. original to say in the storytelling level. And that's what movies are. You know, they tell stories and this one, the music distracted from the story, but the story was boring. So then the only thing you have left in the music is the music. And that's not very good. However, what was your favorite song, Chance? <laughs> what a spontaneous question, Colin Firth. Um, I think, actually, I think that uh, Money, Money, Money was probably my favorite song because it's the first time that I don't really care about Sophie and her fr- I like I like that song all right at the beginning, um, but I like it when the movie like unfurls and the old women start prancing around in the most fanciful ways. Um, and they sort of like started making use of the hotel space and opening the windows and doing crazy things. And it leads into uh, your mother ejected us from the goat house. Um, so that was probably my favorite. Least favorite easily. Are we on the same page here? Our last summer. Oh, no. SOS. The Brosnan oh, solo is, song. I just thought our last summer was like real. It was the creepiest. Because okay. that's when like the, the dads are like each flirting with their maybe daughter. But I thought the best song was Winter Takes It All, not only because it like lets Meryl, who's maybe the only good singer on screen, do her thing. Also, the funny callback to the way they sing it on the trip uh, was pretty funny. <laughs> Siegfried and Dominic Cooper are good singers. I think you're forgetting them. Um, but yeah, she her trying to sing Brosnan basically off that cliff while he is unsure for five minutes how to respond is fun. Is the direction just to stand here for the duration of the song? <laughs> Answer's yes. Where's Donna? So yeah, Noah and I had an opinion on this movie, and it was it, it was pretty film-based. Um, but why don't we call in somebody who knows something about theater and what happens when plays come to the screen and what parts they lose and what parts they gain. Let's talk to Ruthie Fearberg. The winner takes it all. The loser standing small. Beside the victory. Well, today on Be Real, we've called in an expert witness to help Noah and I create a, a backdrop for basically knowing what we're talking about when it comes to jukebox musicals. Very pleased today to be joined by the senior features editor from Playbill, Ruthie Fearberg. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this. Yes, I am too. I want to gain some knowledge. So I emailed you the other day um, because we're watching Across the Universe and Mamma Mia and Rock of Ages. And you immediately to my, um, I really, I was really glad that you did this. We're like, well, this goes back a long, long time. So I think a lot of people probably think of jukebox musicals kind of hitting their stride in the 90s and the 2000s with Mamma Mia and Jersey Boys, but you brought up the Gershwins. So let's, can we go back that far? Yeah, we can. I mean, I think, again, like the 90s and 2000s, it's definitely a surge on Broadway, but in general, and especially when you're looking at jukebox uh, movie movie musicals, it does. It goes all the way back to the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Really where it begins is in 1942 with Yankee Doodle Dandy, you know, like, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. that one, yeah. like all the way back um, with George M. Cohan. And so Yankee Doodle Dandy was a movie in 1942 with songs that, you know, what Yankee Doodle sounds to us today was actually the popular music of that day Mm -hmm. so it's like hearing abba in mamma mia those were the songs of you know the popular (laughs) songs by george m cohan were in yankee doodle dandy um and james cagney starred in that movie and it you know it won oscars and it's that that's i feel like is probably a, a starting point i mean i think the other thing too is it's important to realize um the the definition of a jukebox musical maybe that's even a better place to yeah start let's set the terms the thing is mu- american musical theater came out of a tradition of musical reviews and vaudeville and and the follies and those kinds of things so those always were popular songs of the day with dancers and singers and what became the american musical was when there was a book story attached to it, a narrative Mm -hmm. that the songs moved plot. So that, and that I'd say that's still the difference today between like a television show, let's say like Glee, where there are all these popular songs and they're singing, but the songs don't necessarily move forward the plot. They're just there because the Glee club sang them. But in a show like crazy ex girlfriend, that's a musical comedy television show, because if you take out the songs, you lose part of the story you know if you if you start if you pick up where the song started and connect that to where the song ends without the song in between you're like wait what just happened right so in the 40s and like what became the golden age of american musical theater was the popularization of these book musicals and you know then even using dance to tell story instead of dance being a break from the story how did people feel about these these forms, because I, I get the sense um, today that sometimes people think of them as at odds, like a traditional book narrative musical is is maybe the purest version of the form in some people's eyes. And a jukebox musical is, say, more of a, I don't know, uh, a, a recognition grab, if not like a cash grab. Um, yeah. Um, does that dichotomy go back a ways to your knowledge? Yeah. Jukebox musicals have this rap for being a cash grab, for being a tourist trap, um, because people are already familiar with the music. But while it can be successful financially, while it certainly is a way to break through all the noise on Broadway, I mean, there are 41 Broadway theaters 
And there has to be some hook to get people to choose your show over the one that's two blocks down. So I don't blame anyone for that. But my personal opinion is I I never care what your source material is. I care what you do with it. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's the catalog of ABBA or if it's um, Don Quixote and sure. like one of the literary classics of the world. There are ways to make messes of both of those things and there are ways to make brilliance of both of those things. So let's talk about making brilliance of the jukebox musical then. When, sure. when you feel, uh, you mentioned you've, you've seen Jersey Boys on stage and Mamma Mia too? Yes. Okay. Um, so when it's going really well with those big hits, sort of the staple jukebox musicals of the last 20 years or so, um, mm-hmm. what's going well? What's, what, is, what keeps bringing people back to those shows? Jersey Boys is what we started to see a little bit more of where I call it a bio musical, a bio jukebox musical, because it's the story of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons as told through their music. But you also learn, you know, the generation of the songs themselves. This is how we wrote Sherry. This is why we wrote Walk Like a Man. This is the struggle I had to get. Can't keep my eyes off of you on the radio. Mamma Mia is a jukebox musical, ABBA, but they wrote a plot around the songs that they wanted to to put in the show. So what they probably did, and I don't know this for a fact, um, is they probably made a list of ABBA hits. Mm -hmm. And then they said, all right, how do we get, you know, we can't do something without Dancing Queen and we we can't do something without Mamma Mia. How do we get those in here? So they were built differently, but I think as the Tony Awards suggest, the strength of those two shows and why they've become the quote more respected of the jukebox musical is because of the strength of their books. Mm -hmm. And the book of a musical is actually like a very contentious topic within theater in general, because a lot of people don't understand what it means. They think it's just the dialogue between songs and on a technical standpoint, it is, but there's also the book of a musical for a show like Hamilton, where there are barely, there's barely dialogue that doesn't happen within a song, Mm -hmm. you know, especially because it's mixing styles of rap and hip hop with musical theater. Um, there's a, there are shows like Les Mis that are entirely sung through that still has a book because the book is the scaffolding and the book is the structure and the book is the relationship of the characters. And the book is essentially the significance of the, why are we telling this story? I wanted to unpack real quick what you think of actually the style of writing of something like, uh, Mamma Mia in terms of folding pre-existing songs into a plot or finding plot elements or plot resonances again that match the skill it takes to write a plot around songs when you're committing to not changing lyrics yeah is extremely difficult and even in the worst of jukebox musicals it's a really hard thing that we're asking writers to do yeah and i spoke to the writers of escape to margaritaville that's the jimmy buffett Um, yeah that's the jimmy buffett musical that had its very short-lived run at the Marquee Theater. Um, but it was written by Michael Malian and uh, Greg Garcia. And whether or not 
it was, let's just say this, the New York Times and many of the other critics panned it. Yeah. I enjoyed myself in the theater, but I would not call it like the pinnacle of the American musical. Okay. And yet, uh-huh. things that they had to do to get Margaritaville to be a song that made sense in that musical. Yeah. Like there was this, okay, so we we all know the song, you know, Margaritaville. Oh, sure. And looking for my last shaker of salt, 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 salt. Everybody joins in, right? Uh-huh. There was this gimmick that they worked in where um, one of the characters is like this older guy who has just, he kind of like lives at this ru- Escape to Margaritaville Resort. You don't know how he got there, but it's very clear that like he got there and he never left. And he is always looking for a shaker of salt to put on his, I don't know, his fries or to throw salt in a drink or whatever it is. And so then when you get to the end of act one and the actor Paul Alexander Nolan, who plays the lead, is is singing to himself really sad that he's lost this woman he started to fall in love with. And this old guy character chimes in with looking for my lost shaker assault. It's like, oh my God, that joke came back around. Yeah. So whether or not you appreciate the musical as a whole, the the sort of breadcrumbs that the writers had to leave for a joke like that to land that was written in a Jimmy Buffett song however many years ago is still really hard. Yeah. I was, there's a, Coming back to Mamma Mia, you because you reminded me of it with a very specific like object mention, and that sounds really like well planned and well integrated. Um, there's the the lay all your love on me where Sky and Sophie sing to each other on the beach. Yeah. And in the opening thing, there's a reference from Sky about like, well, the only vice I have is smoking, and he kind of like pulls a cigar or something out of nowhere, and it's like, well, you had to you had to have that on hand because the lyrics yeah. dictated you do some prop work there. But I think it kind of works because like. You're letting the yeah, you're letting the audience in on like the limitations of of what you're dealing with a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the first four songs of that musical work unbelievably well in where they go and like their slots, but also together. Like you start the show off with "Honey, Honey," which, by the way, is just such a wonderful song, and you're laying the groundwork of she's reading her mom's diary. And she's getting inside her mom's head, which is just such a great little device of this idea that these three men who she mentions in the diary are the people that she thinks are her possible three fathers and are the three men that we're eventually going to meet. Right. So right from the beginning, you do what an opening number needs to do in that you're setting up the premise, you're setting up the problem. It's to this really fun, upbeat song. And then in the, you know, I I don't want to call it the B plot, but the because it's not, but like the parallel plot, you go straight into money, money, money. And you learn that Donna's problem is that she's a single mom and she has no money to keep this hotel going. And so you understand where she is emotionally so that when these guys come in, why she's thrown for such a loop. Right. Right. And then you have thank you for the music, which is gorgeous. And any song about thanking for music in a musical, I am on board for. <laughs> yeah. It tends to fit. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then Mama Mia, I mean, you have to have it. And for her, it's Donna's moment of reminiscing of her reminiscing back to the days that were in the diary. So those four just like 
work really well and are closing a loop. I wanted to ask real quick because you mentioned you'd seen it, and I think neither. No, I, I mean, I know I haven't. I don't think Noah's seen it either. Um, what's your take on uh, Mamma Mia: Colon? Here we go again. I had the greatest time in that movie theater. I saw it on the day that it opened. Everybody in the movie theater was there for it. You know, basically like clapping and popcorn throwing was the atmosphere. Sure. And I thought it was really, really fun. And that's what it set out to be. It didn't set out to be Dear Evan Hansen and Rip Your Heart Out. Although I will say without a spoiler mm. that the end of that movie absolutely made me cry. Wow. Okay. Well, we can't spoil it, but that's a that's an endorsement of some kind. Get the yeah, to the theater. And, well, it's an endorsement. It's an endorsement of Meryl Streep, which like, hello. Oh well, yeah. We we're short on those in this culture. Um, so, uh, speaking of um, aesthetics and colors and clothes, let's talk about across the universe. Um, oh yeah. One of the things that really struck me about it, um, especially in compared to the other two films was that the arrangements of these very well-known songs are different and emotionally inflected, and they draw out parts of the, especially with the really early bubblegummy stuff. Um, mm -hmm. It makes it so much more interesting than, frankly, I mean, just to take a shot at Rock of Ages, than somebody singing Don't Stop Believing." Um, and that really jumped out at me. What, what jumps out for you from across the universe? That is one of the things that absolutely jumps out at me. Mm -hmm. um, I have always wondered what the craze of the Beatles is. Like, was it just that they were really good looking kids? Because I didn't think that their songs were very good. I felt that they were very repetitive. I felt that they kind of, a lot of the songs like live in one key. And I specifically remember hearing Prudence sing Hold Your Hand. Yes, going, that's oh exactly the one I was thinking of. Yes, that song is amazing. Because the real one, as you mentioned, is a little mind-numbing. Yes, but when she sings it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is like the yearning in that yep. song, the, the longing, the the desperation almost, and and just the sadness within her, not because... I want to hold, not just because I should say, I want to hold your hand and you won't let me, or I want to hold your hand and you don't know, but I want to hold your hand and I don't even know why. Right. Because she's grappling with her own sexuality and her own just adolescence. And I, yeah, that song blew my mind. Blew my mind. I want to hold your hand. Oh, please. Say to me, you'll let me be your Julie Tamor specifically told me I made a list of 30 to 33 songs by the musicians known as the Beatles and said, you know, which ones do I want to make sure I get in there and what's the progression of these songs and how can we arrange them and let's look at early Beatles and she's convinced that early Beatles songs were meant to be sung by women mm. and that that's why the fan base of the Beatles, they were adored by young women. Yes. We're so uh, adored by them because they sang in the vocabulary and in the emotion of young women. So Ruthie, uh, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this one. I'm curious as, as, as you look ahead as, as somebody very ingrained in, in the theater world and, and writing and reporting, um, 
if you look at the just like the list of jukebox musicals that's that's come out over the past few years and, and is still coming out there's a lot of stuff still in that mode of like oh there's a classic rock artist whose discography we would like to to do something with and that can be good that can be bad um is there is there a medium transforming or bending idea out there that you think like could change the way people think about jukebox musicals in the future well i just think the more high quality ones we put out, the more respect they, they gain, you know? Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, a lot of this also has to do with the, the music industry and that music artists, mainstream music artists can't make money off of their albums necessarily in the same way they used to because of streaming platforms like Spotify and, and, you know, YouTube for that matter, that are just putting music out for free. And so they're not making money that way. So they're thinking, great, I have a catalog. Let me put it into a stage show and I can start making ticket money and royalties once it's licensed off of that. So there's also, you know, that financial background to it. So I don't see the production and the volume of jukebox musicals slowing at any point in time. I mean, we've got summer is on Broadway right now. Like I said, the share show is coming head over heels with the music of the go-go's on Broadway right now. So that's, you know, just new in this season, jagged little pill with Alanis Morissette is coming. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually Moulin Rouge is coming, which is amazing. And I cannot wait for it to get here. And that one I think is possibly the most interesting of the bunch because it's not, reaching into one artist's catalog it's reaching into a whole bunch which we have seen before but when we've seen that it's been in the context of rock of ages and all the 80s music and disaster the musical and all the 70s music and this is contemporary music like there is rihanna in there and it's jarring when you hear it there's Katy perry there's lady gaga and at first you hear it and you're like wait what like and then you realize what dramatic writing those songwriters and others did and that it totally makes sense to bring them into a jukebox musical. So in terms of gaining respect for the art form, I think it's just about creating quality narratives, creating things that are organic, realizing when an artist's catalog, if that's the way that it wants to be done, if it's conducive to this kind of storytelling, because you really do need musicians who are telling stories in their songs. If you're going to then make a story out of those songs. Yeah. Well, so we'll see, we'll see what the medium brings, but I hope everybody's needs to bring their a game. Okay. That's what I'm hoping. All right. Well, Ruthie, thank you for bringing your talent to the podcast today. Much appreciated. It is absolutely my pleasure. I was cheated by you, and I think you know when. So I made up my mind, and it must come to an end. That taught me a lot. That was terrific. Good job, Chance. Thanks, uh, well, before we get to these other movies, uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back for Across the Universe and Rock of Ages. Hey, this is Christina. 
and this is Jess. If you enjoy stories about ghouls, ghosts, goblins, and everything in between, then join us on Ghouls Gone Wild as we explore haunted locations around the world and tell our favorite scary stories. New episodes are released on the 1st and 15th of each month. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or at ghoulsgonewildpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ghouls Gone Wild Podcast. Spook you later. Okay, 2012's Rock of Ages. It's a film directed by Adam Shankman, who has uh, directed such movies as A Walk to Remember, Bringing Down the House, The Pacifier, and the uh, filmic version of Hairspray. So uh, he was also a, a dancer in music videos for one Paula Abdul and one Janet Jackson. Um, was a judge and so you think you could dance so it's no wonder that julianne huff who most famous for dancing with the stars got the lead role in this movie there's definitely a musical theater thing going on but it's not necessarily um you know bound to any kind of broadway tradition with the with the maker of rock of ages here and of Um, course you're forgetting the sort of film screenwriting legend justin thoreau who did a version of this script so oh yeah the the pedigree here is astronomical i mean thomas cruise is in this damn movie oh giving his all there's a lot of people giving their alls i'll give them that sure uh russell brand (laughs) to what end russell brand alec baldwin uh catherine zeta jones malin ackerman mary j blige brian cranston it is uh it's a lot of folks so yeah one of the things in this movie is something that noah has alluded to um before which is that there's this central love story a incredibly incredibly traditional <laughs> love story um between the the julian huff character sherry and diego Bonetta drew um you know she gets off the bus from oklahoma in la and uh wanders down to what is it the bourbon yeah the bourbon a club on is it on sunset i shouldn't try to pretend on the I know. strip the hollywood strip oh okay and immediately gets her suitcase taken away after she's been singing Sister Christian on the bus. And uh, It's okay, though, because her suitcase only has records in it. Right. She brought nothing she else. She has all of her money and her clothes in her pockets. <laughs> and Drew's like, oh, I'm sorry. Your suitcase got taken away. You should come into my bar. She's like, is that the bourbon from the live hair metal albums that I own? Because I'm such a record snob, but all I own is shit. <laughs> um, right. I just have a lot of Sister Sledge. And she immediately gets um, a job. Foreigner's at, greatest hits at the club owned by uh, Alec Baldwin's Dennis Dupree and managed <laughs> by Russell Brand's Lonnie Barnett. Um, and yeah, these two are falling in love, and it is, in a word, boring. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. But I think it's that's something that's happening in all three of these movies. You talked about sort of the the more political gender read before, um, but it is hard to develop characters through songs that were not meant to develop characters so especially in rock of ages what happens is you really end up looking at a wild supporting cast because there's like a black hole in the middle of this movie i think as there kind of is to different extents in a lot of them i don't care that much about sophie and sky i'd much rather watch christine baranski and colin firth i don't care that much about julian and diego i'd much rather watch alec baldwin (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like these movies are beholden to the rules set up by these songs. Yeah. And so when you get to like an interesting character moment, it's like, 
well, what song are we going to fit in here? And the song is probably going to preach like a pretty middle of the road feeling about something, especially if you pick like the dumbest. Yeah. Especially if you pick the dumbest song from this era. Like if Bon Jovi's your climax, like how did you get there? That stage is a pedestal. And when you're up there, you're untouchable. I can guarantee you something a lot more cool. This man spews out three things. Sex. I saw Stacey Jacks. Hateful music. The B-plot of this movie is then a, a bizarre thing about Brian Cranston running for mayor and Catherine Zeta-Jones kind of being like the Nancy Reagan puppet master of his life. And they're running on the platform of like, we'll shut down the strip, even though Brian Cranston doesn't care that much about that. Um, but then it's like, Catherine Zeta, Mrs. Patricia Whitmore, why do you... Why do you care so much about this? And you kind of slowly find out. But the thing she cares most about is um, just stopping Stacy Jacks. The sleazy red dragon tattoo having hair metal icon Stacy Jacks. Brett Michaels bandana Stacy Jacks. Brett Michaels is the avatar here, I think. The A part of the B plot is that the place is going to go out of business. Alec Baldwin hasn't paid taxes in years and the man, the greedy managers like keep stealing money from the venue. So they're going to go out of business. So they need to come up with the money. And then we have this Stacy Jack's like problem in the middle of the movie which is that like we need this rock god at his lowest. Right. But a rock god at their lowest is the worst kind of human right. ever. <laughs> and making them sympathetic is like a very big challenge. And I know that I'm wearing like 2018 goggles, but this movie's from 2012. Right. This movie's not from 2008. When you have your rock star protagonist person who says hello to women by clutching one of their breasts, which she does three times. Yeah. You've got a problem. I think it's eerily similar to the character who plays in Magnolia, who is. Oh, sure. A, a, like a, a macho chauvinist, like sex freak who is like selling that to a crowd of like ravenous people who want to buy it. And whose weird character moment in the movie comes from being sat down by a journalist who tells him something about himself that he tried to forget. Except in Magnolia, it's like a very powerful, interesting moment where it's like, can you... Can you see that there is something behind a vile man? And in this movie, Malin Ackerman's like, you used to be good when you put out the movie or when you put out the album Sex Stick. That was like really you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then she's like, what's inside? And then he sings Bon Jovi's Wanted Dead or Alive as if it were a meaningful personal confession. Right. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty moved when he admitted that he'd not only seen a million faces, but he'd also rocked them all. <laughs> but that song is so ridiculous to begin with. That's what what troubles me about this movie and what's so like, sure, you can dismiss like the cultural problems of Mamma Mia because they're like having so much fun or whatever you said earlier, Chance. But this one, like 
I don't think they're having that much fun. Like a lot of it's played pretty straight, you know, and like the big sort of emotional tear uh, for these two young lovebirds is the fact that like he thinks that his young virginal girlfriend like got deflowered by Stacy Jacks mm-hmm. because it is so accepted that if she walks out of a back room and like adjusts her skirt and Stacy Stacy Jacks of course would not be wearing pants at any time. <laughs> You know, or if he is wearing pants, it's going to be this that belt buckle with the big red dick coming out of it. Right. There is an upsetting amount of crotch grabbing uh, that was redeemed only for me by the fact that Christine Baranski grabbed her crotch a few times in Mamma Mia. And I was like, all right, if this is I'm into this. But Cruz does it too much. Um, Let's talk about. So let's talk about the music. Actually, can I lay on you a weird like what are the boundaries of the universes of these movies? Oh, do you think they touch? Um, not the different movies, but so Van Halen and Michael Jackson exist in this universe. They are name checked, but like Journey doesn't and Bon Jovi doesn't because they are writing and performing their songs. So like, what is hair metal? Are they coming up with it on the spot? But they're coming up with it, but not only are they coming up with it, it's already dead. Because like the young, because like new kids on the block pop. is here. Yeah, new kids on the block is so it's sort of this nostalgia play. But yeah, I get what you're saying. In this universe, it doesn't make any sense for Stacy Jacks to have been a character, you know. But it also like puts him in a weird. It can't decide whether Arsenal is like the Rolling Stones or Arsenal is Foreigner. Right. But then my other question is. So the one of the big things in the movie is that like Arsenal's breaking up, and one of the big plot points of the early is uh, their last show uh, is early on in the movie. But like who like Arsenal and Stacy Jacks like if he performs as a solo artist, there doesn't seem to be like there's no Jimmy Page in like another room. Yeah, that was a completely fake bit of conflict. I think we're gonna come down pretty hard in this movie. I want to say that there are a few moments where like it's so close sometimes to like completely tipping over the line into being like a David Wayne movie. And it's mostly when Alec Baldwin is like, you know, denting the fourth wall, like by almost looking straight into the lens and saying things like, let me guess you're from Oklahoma and you came here and you went like the, it, this movie. It's for me is the um, like exhibit a of the weird ironic problem that is Alec Baldwin that when you're like Alec, can you act well in a movie? It's like boring and not very good. But when you're like, Alec, can you make fun of these proceedings? It's incredible. Like his entrance into the movie where he's like on that tabletop doing like the Michael Scott dry clean jeans dance. And he's like (laughs) 50 years older than everyone else. And he's like, Hey guys. And he's just like a little bit better than Pierce Brosnan. (laughs) He's great in this movie. I love it. I think he's really good in this movie and I think a lot of his jokes and his, a lot of his humor with Russell Brand like saves it and I think like having that crazy scene with Tom Cruise and Melinda Ackerman where they like destroy that bathroom because their sex is so passionate like alludes to sort of a spoofiness right. to this movie like a David Wayneiness of this movie but and only I think, for like a half hour like because I think exactly but I think then the movie goes for that weird sort of bit where it insinuates that Alec Baldwin and Russell Brand are gay lovers. Right. 
which like comes out of nowhere. And it just seems like this thrown in again, like this movie has a weird, these movies have weird ways of like outing people because they needed it to fulfill a certain plot point. Yeah. Some sort of cliche of the musical. My least favorite song is uh, I want to know what love is. Cause it's just so it's not the same tone as the rest of the film. Like if you're going to play it straight, play it all straight, right. but don't like goof. Like, I don't think it's as a goof. I think it's a goof. (laughs) Thank you, David Wayne Scholar. Um, Yeah. I think that the best song actually is Jukebox Hero, I Love Rock and Roll, because it gets into that, like, weird medley where, like, Baldwin is, like, taking over as, like, a drunk guy in the office who likes the 70s a little more than the 80s. And it's just, like, so much to deal with that it's like, yeah, this is hair metal. It's so much to deal with. Uh, my least favorite is uh, Catherine Zeta, whom I love uh, as a performer, singing Hit Me With Your Best Shot in that church. Um, the choreography is terrible. It's, like, not clear, like, why... I don't know. The choreography in this movie is like very in your face and also like kind of unimpressive at the same time. Yes, I would agree with that. My favorite song is Journeys Any Way You Want It as performed by Mary J. Blige when describing how her strip joint like works. Yeah, Mary J. Blige comes into this movie way too late. Way too late because she's so flippin' good. Yeah. Like, she's the most talented singer in the... Like, why is she only in the back half hour of this movie? If you're going to do a... I mean, this is a little cynical to Adam Shankman, but if you're going to have a token black character, like, do a little better. Right. Well, put her in there earlier. Right. Like, if you're going to have your Janis Joplin lady from across the universe, like, introduce her the second they move to the city. Yes, that would be good. Um, but uh, but she's spectacular. She does the singing really well and adds, like, a soulfulness that I think the other characters are unable to muster because they're just doing because they're not generationally talented soul singers (laughs) well yeah but they're doing like that disney channel like nbc does Grease live kind of singing and acting that's you know that's like ramadamading annoying this is a uh, we should wrap up here but this is a point i want to make too about the source material which is um hair metal and generic musical numbers are not different enough there's no, there's not that much fun in the transposition process the way that Across the Universe is re- routinely interesting in the way that it adapts songs. And this is sort of just like bombast and spectacle and then like a slightly smoothed out version of bombast and spectacle and bad. Oh, and then one more thing. If I, if I may quote uh, the poet Steve Perry, oh, the movie never ends. It goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> And then when once you think it's over, then you realize that like the salvation to this whole endeavor is don't stop believing. Which is there could not is, be a more played out song today. Yeah. I a mean, song that there is, are some karaoke bars where you get like fined for picking that song. A song that has been uh bled utterly dry of its kitsch value at this point. But maybe it didn't in two thousand eight when this movie was actually made. It still came out after Glee, so that's a crime that it puts this much weight on that song. Um, it's bad, bad. I think there are some like supremely entertaining parts. Um, you know, the the weird, bad, good highs in this movie, I think, are the highest of the three. But like as an endeavor, bad, bad. Yeah. And it's so troubling. Like it's just such a trouble for being such a recent movie. 
there's so much like blatant, like icky sex stuff. Yeah. But at you least know, the, 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 go ahead. But it's, and it's unaware of it too. It's not even marginally critical of it. At least Paul Giamatti got to play the third sleazy music producer of his filmography. What <laughs> is he doing? Oh man. It's like, yeah, we need a sleazy music producer. Like, what's Giamatti doing? I get the feeling he's going to be in Love and Mercy and Straight Outta Compton in three years, so let's get him. Oh, is he in Straight Outta Compton? He's the sleazy music producer. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Across the Universe. So 2007's Across the Universe, or if, I don't know how it was known, you know, in your high school when it was released, but like... It's that fucking Beatles musical right. to, to me, senior year. Uh, and I remember seeing this. Did you see this when it came out? No, I never had. I saw it in the theaters, and I think I like secretly kind of went nuts for it, but like told all my friends that I didn't really like it. Hmm. So this is Julie Taymor, the woman who uh, sort of made The Lion King a Broadway success. Yeah, Across the Universe did not exist as a stage musical. This was made as a movie. So this movie attempts to take the greatest hits. It attempts to take Beatles one, if you will, and turn it into a narrative, a coherent narrative, much the way I think like Jersey boys, not only talks about the era, but also tries to give the context in which the music was written a narrative. Yeah. And we open here with Jude um, played by Jim Sturgis, who is one of my least favorite British actors. Um, not only cause he's not good looking, but also cause he only knows how to play smug and heartbroken. No part of this category was teed up for no today. No, not one actor, not one part. Keep going. Jim Sturgis is a poor man's James McAvoy. Uh-huh. And the only reason that Jim Sturgis continues to work is that there must be somewhere the Oasis story in turnaround. And they're just like keeping him around until they'll finally greenlight him to play both parts. One of both parts. Liam and like Noel. A, Liam and Noel, the way that uh, Ewan McGregor did in season three of Fargo. Don't look back in anger coming to Netflix soon. Oh my god, it'd probably just be called uh, Champagne Supernova <laughs> This movie should be called Champagne Supernova um, So we start on the beaches of somewhere, I guess England, Liverpool You know, smug, heartbroken, James McAvoy stares into the slow, <laughs> tracking shot camera Saying this like prologue of like, listen to my story, it's about a girl and it's like, okay, James McAvoy. And then we flash back. <laughs> By the way, Noah, in case it's not coming through, Noah knows that this is not James McAvoy, but keep going. Oh, uh, shit. Uh, Jim Sturgis. Oh, we didn't know. <laughs> I'm not keeping this staying in. Um. So Jim Sturgis is sitting on this ocean. We flash back. You know, it's the early 60s. Things are fine. Like, he's hanging out in, like, punk rock clubs or something. Sure. And she, Evan Rachel Wood, the aforementioned girl that the story's about, one is to assume, uh, is, you know, going to the homecoming (laughs) and Sadie Hawkins dances. And there's a pretty interesting juxtaposition using the Beatles song and showing it how it could be, like, softer and harder. Yep. You know, in its arrangement, which is, I think, pretty interesting. And then uh, 
Jim McAvoy Sturgis goes to America in search of his father, who, much like Mamma Mia, was uh, had like impregnated his mother and then returned. But this is like from World War Two or something. Mm. So and the father works at Princeton or so he thinks. Uh, so he goes to Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey, and is like, hey, dad, where, where's my dad? And realizes the dad's not a professor. He's, in fact, a lowly janitor. And so then Jim Sturgis smugly is just like, I'm not here for your love or your approval or whatever. I'm here for money. Can you point me in the right direction? And then he meets that other guy who's Evan Rachel Wood's brother. Max. Max. And they, like, start an unlikely friendship. And the first act of this movie is basically the musical 1963 social network. Right. Like we're on an Ivy League <laughs> campus, like making mischief. Little help with my friends, hot or not. I get a yeah, I get by with a little help from Facebook. Right. <laughs> Is there anybody going to listen to my story? All about the girl who came to stay. As a stranger to our shores, the least I can do is offer you some Ivy League hospitality. Uh, this is Jude. This is my sister. My God, you, you have perfect teeth. Oh, yeah. What are you going to do if you don't go back to college? What any irresponsible, unmotivated dropout would do, go to New York, like tonight. But let me cut back for a second. Uh-huh. And I want to talk a little bit earlier this time about my favorite song, because I think my favorite song is pretty early on in this one, and it is when it is showing, yes, when it is showing the 1960s, it shows this, like, idyllic sort of setup, your, your very, like, average, you know, Leave it to Beaver, I Love Lucy kind of life, but then, like, there's this undercurrent and this criticalness to it where it shows this young woman looking at another young woman and just singing to herself, I want to hold your hand. And it's a very like innocent thing, but it also shows the repression of, you know, people who have been marginalized, specifically a woman who is a woman of color and a queer person. Right. And it, it, it immediately addresses it, it does it, it does the thing that the other two movies does so clumsily in such a clever but also, I think, heartbreaking way that this movie includes queer characters, but we're not going to use them as a joke here. Whether it's a cynical cash grab or whatever, the jukebox musical exists to appeal to the fans of an already existing body of work. And this one, I feel like, exists in a place where, okay, if you know the Beatles, great but a fundamental understanding of the Beatles or the era they lived through is not essential to appreciate this or even a familiarity with a previous stage production does not mean you will not appreciate this as a movie, as a visual spectacle. Mm -hmm. And at the same time though, I think that the arc of this movie and the arc of these characters is mostly faithful to the Beatles chronology and at least like the mood that transpired over you know, teeny boppers to rock band to um, wild studio based psychedelia to sort of like more like gospel solo work at the end. What What do you think? Well, what's your what's your least favorite song? All you need is love. 
feels more like don't stop believing in the sense that it's just like, all right, I get it. It's dancing queen. It's mama Mia. You had to do this. I think that song just blows. I think the one that's <laughs> actually like mishandled probably is like, let it be. That's yes. In the way that they uh, introduce prudence in a way that's really interesting and very character based. Um, introducing Jojo as the traumatized father of a little boy who was killed in the 65 Detroit riots introduces him more as like a facsimile of pain and not like a real person. And it's also like a pretty strange juxtaposition with like the rest of the stuff going on. And I, I feel like there's two moments. There's like this one where it's, you know, like just the white people on screen are not dealing with the same level of trauma, but it's juxtaposed anyway, both here and when Martin Luther King is assassinated. Yeah. It juxtaposes that with uh, Jim Sturgis just being just Jude unable to like make art. And yeah. like, that's his big struggle is like not the systematic persecution of like people who look like him. I think you're right. I think it's sort of an, I know that, Tamor really intentionally wanted to include the Jojo character and that the the pain of that plot line because she felt like the Beatles music was in so many ways influenced and kind of cribbed from rhythm and blues. Um, but I think she kind of put herself in a no-win situation by like, do I leave this out or do I introduce him via, via like maudlin gospel? And I think the right way to go is always to think about the character instead of thinking about what you quote-unquote have to do to bring in somebody of a different ethnicity. And that character is just doing so much unnatural, like, plot work, because not only is he reminiscent of Detroit, but he's also, like, supposed to be Jimi Hendrix. That said, I think the other song I actually really like is, um, which I didn't think I was going to, is While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Um, Sure. It's slowed. A lot of these songs are slower, which I think works really well to kind of draw out the emotion that's kind of, like, latent in what had to be too... You know, cut they cut it down to three oh five pop music um, of the time, um, and that one ends with just sort of a JoJo and Jude like drunkenly in the street, and JoJo's going like oh, oh, and then Jude is just kind of like mewing out of key, and it kind of like tapers into this like you know unmusical nonsense, which I felt like as the movie went, I want to say. I liked it weirdly more because it sort of strayed from the, like the Beatles worship of it all and more into like just the bad vibes, the inherent vice bad vibes that kind of undergirded this time where like the people who were trying to do right were too radical and alienated some of the artists. And like, yes, like inspiration was a part of it, but also ego needlessly drove people apart I kind of liked when it got dark and made me think about the Beatles as like, you know, not a Pepsi commercial. I like that, but I don't know how I feel about that being used to sort of further what is essentially like a very toxic relationship between Jude and Lucy. Yeah. I think if you were, I don't think they're good together is what I, my real issue. I'm with you. And I think if you were really following through on some of the darkness I'm talking about, the movie doesn't end with, no, you need it, love. The movie ends with the long and winding road and she walks away from him and they go their separate yes. ways. Much like the goddamn Beatles did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think them getting back together is such a weirdly Hollywood wink. Right. 
when this movie needs to be more like La La Land in the end, where they've gone through the 60s and they cannot go back. What I've wanted you to say the whole time is that all these movies should be more like La La Land because it's... This movie's made me miss La La Land. (laughs) So let's talk about some cameos and maybe get out of here. Let me ask you this. Is Joe Cocker the Mary J. Blige of white male rockers? I think he might be. He shows up in this movie, of course, to... uh, um... He's a holy roller! (laughs) That's such a good. That's that gets an honorable mention from me. Yeah, he does come together, um, and it's nice that he's included in this movie because he's very famous for covering the "Fire with Little Help from My Friends." Um, but just when you thought they were only going to include good musicians in this movie, hey, by God, there's you, Bono. Okay, you uh, you would take Joe Cocker over Bono discography wise. I would say the last seven to eight years of. Maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years of U2 has They're ruined. They're 60 years old. Has In the ruined? name of love, my friends, please make them stop. <laughs> you still bitter that uh, Songs of Innocence showed up on your iPhone? Yes, I didn't, I didn't order that. Um, Bono is like weirdly good in this movie but the the weird thing about it if you're a U2 fan is you know he's been waiting his entire life. If you've seen fucking... Um, the rattle and hum tour or him doing Mac Fisto on the zoo TV tour. This guy has been waiting his entire life to be like to, first of all, to play an American like con man in a movie. And he plays this guy, doc, Dr. Robert, who's sort of like a right. bus piloting psychonaut who eventually gets them, of course, from <laughs> New York to LA because like what sixties, you know, story of America would be complete without, skipping over the Midwest entirely and going from New York to California. Um, right. But he, so of course he, he said, if you know this movie, you know, he sings, uh, I am the walrus and it's, you know, he sounds a lot like Bono. Um, and it's very trippy. Then at the end, they get to the camp where he's come to commune with a man named Dr. Gary. It's another, the West coast psychonaut. Played by Eddie Izzard. Um, but there's this moment where the the our characters, our Max and our Lucy and our uh, our Jude, are like Bono, we don't live here. You can't leave us. And he all of a sudden gets this sort of like Mansonian tilt to him, and the camera's like trying to look be- behind those famous sunglasses. You can get back on the bus or leave your asses here. And it's just like Bono, you made like an acting choice to transform this like total cartoon cliche into like. A creepy cult leader. It was good. Yeah. No, it was okay. Good. I think maybe this is a good bad. I'm in on the good bad part for sure. I think unlike the other ones, which we talked about, I mean, you know, we're flawed movie watchers, just like the rest, the rest of the world. Um, you know, you can get up and be like, is, is, uh, is I want to know what love is still happening. <laughs> I think this one, I liked it a lot more when I actually like committed and got on and sunk into the vibe. Like you do when you're getting like on side B of um, the white album. And I think, I think it's a pretty clear, good, bad. I'd be interested to return to it, but like not tomorrow and not this decade. Yeah. It goes through some like interesting periods and like much like the Beatles around Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album they like it gets a little lost yeah the vietnam scenes like don't look that 
authentic. I mean, in the post Saving Private Ryan world, like just <laughs> war scenes. War scenes are just like hard to do. It's not I think to be Tamor, authentic. It's supposed to be surreal. But I think Tamor does a good job, like in the recruiting office yeah. scenes. Yeah, like, you're right. That's I think the better choice. But to endeavor to do like realistic action in this. Oh, was, the like, foxhole part. Yeah, I know what you're yeah. saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah. And so, and again, I just have no sympathy for Jim Sturgis. And I think that you're losing the the charm of the Beatles by not casting someone who's like more charming. A little bit like Paul, perhaps. <laughs> or. Now don't start that again. What do you think about that, Danny Collins? <laughs> I don't have a George or a Ringo, so we should wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that guy's getting beat up for life itself. Fogelman, no! <laughs> Fogelman, no. What's that movie even about? Um, I get the sense that it's a mix between uh, This Is Us and Collateral Beauty. Oh, God. Folks, find all past episodes at berealpodcast.com. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram and rate us on iTunes. Uh, go find Ruthie Fearberg's wonderful work uh, at Playbill. Um, we were so excited to have some, uh, some ad and sponsorship partners on today's show. What a, what a lovely thing is that was. Thank you to those people. And thank you to you, buddy, for, for, for helping us line them up. I think that's it. I once had a podcast partner, or should I say he once had me? (laughs) Chance, I have spent my life waiting for a podcast partner like you. So pour some sugar on me and let's take us out. Wow, I was up there. Yeah. I was up there. I think you strained a little bit. I did strain, I did strain. But I have a wonderful range. People, I could have done opera.